0: Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of Let It Roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox. If you heard the first episode, you'll know we're talking to Ed Ward, the longtime music historian for NPR's Fresh Air, about his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963. To, to hear the music we're discussing, go to letitrollpodcast.com and access the YouTube and Spotify playlists we've curated for your enjoyment and edification. Last week, we covered the post-war years of 1945 to 1950. This week, we'll cover the first few years of the 1950s, the period when the music was named, although Ed will tell you it's not quite rock and roll yet. Listen up to hear why. We'll also hear about what Nazi scientists had to do with all this, the invention of the bass guitar, the modern recording studio, and the emergence of the first superstar DJ. We'll also have our first encounters with ray charles sam cook and a very young aretha franklin listen close to hear about the genesis of the first teen death cult put on your headphones kick back and prepare yourself for another look into rock and roll history ed ward here we're talking about the history of rock and roll 1920 to 1963 we're talking <clears throat> about Good Rockin' Tonight, the Roy Brown song, written for Winoni Harris, rejected, recorded by Roy Brown, becomes an R&B hit. At that point, Winoni Harris's record label figures out this is a song Winoni needs to be doing.
1: Well, yeah, th- that was a common practice in those days. A good song comes along, and it was, it was about the song, not about the performer or the performance, um, largely because economically, publishing was still leading the way over record sales. Uh, record sales were mostly confined to jukebox operators and a very, very few record collectors. But it, the idea of a teenager going out and buying a hit record, why? You can get it for a nickel at the jukebox and for another nickel, you can play it again. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, it, for instance, when Maybelline came out with Chuck Berry, there were five cover versions that I, I know of, and there were probably more.
0: And but, that goes back all the way to Stephen Foster in American Popular Music, sure. where it became about the song. And before recording, it had to be about the song and the sheet music and singing it and seeing it live or singing it yourself in your parlor. But there's a transition over time as jazz records came along and blues records. And by the time these hard R&B, I mean, you can't really see grandma sitting down at the piano and singing Good Rockin' Tonight and having anywhere near the impact. Well, maybe not your grandma. <laughs> well,
1: maybe Mama <laughs> Thornton. But, no, but you're right. Um, it, it, it was, well, also, and the sheet music couldn't capture the, you know, energy of, of, of the performance. I, I found that out real early when I started buying sheet music of Bob Dylan albums, and whoever was making these piano arrangements, they were just, you know, oh, it's a D chord, so you do this, you know. It, they weren't actually even, I don't think, listening.
0: Yeah, and, and you see that in pop music composition where someone like George Gershwin would have a personal arranger he hired to do the sheet music in such a way that it was representative. But with Winoni and Roy Brown, it's not about the sheet music. It's about the swing. It's about the beat. It's about the power. And, and you know, you told me offline that your second book, the sequel to this, you're going to be talking about the sort of self-reflexive younger generations that come up having been fans of the music – you could almost argue Roy Brown's one of the first, maybe the first of this, because he's writing a song for Winoni Harris. Who was his idol, yeah. And he's referencing Winoni's first big hit for Lucky Millinder, who threw the whiskey in the well with the last verse where they talk about Deacon Brown. And right.
1: Well, Deacon Brown is, is sort of an archetypal black character. He's, he's the, uh, the church guy who's really not all that holy. And a great fun time at
0: parties. Right. And uh, But listening to these two back-to-back... The difference in the arrangement is palpable. Roy Brown's singing style is very different, more kind of rounded. Uh, I wish I knew the technical terms, but there's something he does that you hear later in Jackie Wilson and other singers where he's got a big fat sound. Yeah, more,
1: more, more head tones than, than chest tones. Uh, Wynoni Harris is all, you know, huh, pushing it out and, and loud.
0: Yeah. And and that's for playing live. Yeah.
1: And and for bad sound systems and so forth. Because by this time we were using uh, electronic or electric amplification on on the vocals, but not on the band. So you still had to have, you know, a number of brass instruments and a good loud walloping uh, rhythm section.
0: And one thing we've, we've, niggled about a little bit here is that you don't necessarily consider this rock and roll you you argue that these words are are jump blues
1: they are jump blues uh rock and roll came out of people hearing songs like this and wanting that power but expressed differently with with like no i'm over there i'm Crediting them with overthinking, but but no reference to the past. You know, they this was a complete make it new situation. Um, once once the genie had escaped the bottle. You know, once Little Richard and, and Chuck Berry and people like that had um, expressed themselves. At this point, nobody was thinking about a revolution. They were just thinking about, you know, making hit records, making good money on the road, and making hit records for the African American audience. Yeah, specifically. Because well, I mean, who else would you know? Black singers be making it for, the uh, well, there there were. I mean, Nat King Cole, although he's he's pretty much an exception. He he was immediately targeting the white audience. He was the, one of the very very few black performers in Los Angeles to go straight to Hollywood. Um, I mean, by which I mean as a club performer, Hollywood clubs. Yeah, he he. he was in jazz clubs, although he wasn't necessary Well, he was. He was a jazz piano player of, of incredible strength, that which I didn't realize until much later, uh, hearing the jazz at the Philharmonic jams with him and also Les Paul on guitar. Remarkable stuff. Hmm. I will have to
0: check that out. And we haven't talked about the historical context, but you open the chapter talking about uh, the end of the Musician Union strike, finally, the, the James Petrio... Trillo, Amer- yeah. Trillo, head of the American Federation of Musicians, throws in the towel and he's going to let recording happen after two massive strikes in the 40s.
1: Right, because he, he realized that he was hated by the rank and file and he was, it, the most important thing for him was holding on to power in the union because he wasn't really a musician. He was a member of the Musicians Union who never played. His main instrument was accordion. Because you have to have an instrument when you join yeah, the union, yeah, yeah. you know, so that when people are, you know, looking for people to play, play on a date, they whoa, this, this guy plays bass or this guy plays trumpet.
0: The accordion gets a bad rap, but this, you can blame an accordion player for the genesis of bebop and bluegrass and, and some key moments. Yeah. That Jump Blue's not ever being documented on Shellac. And you also talk about the end of the Shellac crisis.
1: Yeah. The, um, the, the war... You know, it's, it's the usual thing. War accelerates technology. And one of the technologies that was, uh, in the process of, um, evolving very rapidly was petroleum technology and polyvinyl chloride, um, was a much more satisfactory, uh, medium for making records than shellac was, um, shellac depended on the secretions of insects in Southeast Asia, um, Anybody could, you know, I mean, you could go to Pennsylvania or Texas or any of the big petroleum-producing states and get byproducts of of the making of gasoline and mix them together and make polyvinyl chloride. Also, it didn't break quite as easily. It didn't shatter. Um, And the sound quality was better. And eventually, when they learned how to do it, the sound quality was better, yes. Although that was already in, in process in the early 1950s as another... Um, byproduct, several byproducts of the war, high fidelity and tape recording. The, the magnetic tape was invented by the Nazis so that Hitler could record a speech. They could broadcast it at this radio station while he was safely hundreds of miles away elsewhere in Germany.
0: So we can throw out the Allied bombing effort. Thank the Allied bombing effort for magnetic tape. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so another big technological factor at this point is jukeboxes. Like you said, people weren't buying records, at least not R&B and country records. They were listening to them on the jukebox. Right. At the honky-tonk, the drugstore. All over the place. I mean, it, the, the,
1: the fact that the coins put into jukeboxes were easily laundered meant that organized crime moved into that business real early. Jukeboxes and pinball machines, really no problem, you, you know. Take a certain amount of money and claim it came out of the jukebox and nobody could prove you're wrong. Um, and, and so, the yeah, these things showed up at lunch counters. And, and uh, I, I've actually seen jukeboxes in weird places, like in Woolworths by the, by the lunch counter, you know, and these little individual... Um, control panels where you flip the pages over and you know that was one of the first things when I was on vacations with my parents in the mid-50s one of the first things I would check would be just to see what all this music was on these these pages and it all fed into a central jukebox and sometimes there were tiny speakers in the individual things so you could Listen to it. Were you seeing a lot of regional differences in what the jukeboxes had? I wasn't thinking in those terms back then. I was just curious what was on the on the jukebox. Um, my father and my uh, one of, one of his brothers, my uncle, um, had large record collections, and um, my my uncle was was much more into it than my dad. So he wound up with the. Um, Louis Armstrong, Hot Fives and everything. But he was also a big fan of the platters. Um, He said, they sing so sweet, I can hardly believe they're colored.
0: (laughs) And a lot of that was going on around this period, or a lot of confusion about the racial identity of various performers, because you start to get, not so much through jukeboxes somewhat, but mainly through radio, you start getting a lot of young white kids listening to R&B, and businessmen fairly quickly figure out there's money in these right exactly
1: that's where alan freed came from uh he he was a a failed classical dj on a small station in cleveland and this friend of his convinced him to start playing rhythm and blues on his late night shift because really who wants to listen to classical music at 11 o'clock at night um so freed convinced the management to do this his friend owned a record store and they promised to advertise, but he also uh, said that when the numbers got up, he would be it would be easy enough to convince other people to uh, to advertise, and, and they did because immediately, the 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 youth of Cleveland heard that the records that they were buying sort of under the counter, or or at this guy's record store, were um, being played on the radio. And there wasn't that larger black population in, in Cleveland, so they knew this must be for us. And and it's
0: not just in Cleveland. You also talk about uh, WLAC. Uh, was that in Memphis or Nashville?
1: That was in Nashville.
0: Yeah, and there and the same deal where rec- late night DJs, white guys, sponsored by record stores who hadn't previously specialized in R and B or race records in the past.
1: No, but they they were doing these these packages to get rid of overstock.
0: And and yeah, and what a mail great- order. And what a great deal this is. Like, if you're a kid listening to the radio, you want to hear these songs again. It's pretty affordable. You have five or six records in the mail. And, you know, one or two of them are going to be the hit you're after.
1: Right, or a hit or something good.
0: Yeah, and then two or three of them will be,
1: you know. Other. Other. (laughs) (laughs) But people like Atlantic Records in New York noticed this. Yeah, but they didn't participate so much. King in, in Cincinnati jumped right on it because they they had a lot of stuff that was other.
0: Yeah, and that, <laughs> and that Sid Nathan, we've talked about him before, but, I mean, one of the absolute key entrepreneurs. And I think one of the things that's really important and that you try to emphasize in the book or do a good job of emphasizing, one thing I took away from it, was the role of, of these record company owners and DJs and the music business. It's a lot more than just the guy behind the microphone with the guitar. It's, oh, yeah. It's a whole business. It's a whole cultural phenomenon going on at, and it's audience driven one thing about jukeboxes that we haven't talked about is this is a medium that gave the audience complete control over the repertoire and the selection I right mean, you
1: couldn't do that with the radio i want to listen to this record now bang a nickel goes in the slot and a few seconds later there you are
0: yeah and you could do it to some extent with a live band where you can make requests and everything else but you've got to you know, please everybody else. So With a jukebox, some jerk with ten quarters can can monopolize everybody's evening music. Right, and it's it's a, it's a real interesting phenomenon to me the way that changed the power equation. Um, but we yeah. also you talk
1: you mentioned the platters. You talk about vocal
0: groups. There's this huge explosion of black vocal groups around right. this period.
1: Right, that I think I think that may have started during the musicians' strike when instrumentalists were not. Uh, allowed to record, but there were a number of acapella groups. Also, there's the tradition of, of groups like the Mills Brothers um, and the Ink Spots from the 30s. So that, that, that was a well-established black form. A- and so um, it was just, and the early, you know, so-called rock and roll vocal groups were not really that much different from those. They they didn't even have an updated repertoire. They they were doing, you know, over the rainbow and and uh, standards like that. The idea was, you know, to get girls in the mood.
0: <laughs>
1: and a song like the Domino's Sixty Minute Man. Right. There's no
0: question about what you're getting her in the mood for.
1: Well, yeah, but that that was the next step. The the um, they saw that was a very Mills Brothers like arrangement but it had a little peppier rhythm to it. And, and yeah, it had risque lyrics, which is, I guess, also a tradition coming out of the dozens and, and you know, dirty blues. And,
0: and it, to me, it's real interesting because this is you know, the darkest point of the McCarthy era. And there's all this cultural repression. People have come back from the war. They want stability. Uh, they, they're expunging the labor movement from democratic politics. There's this paranoia you know, fear of the Cold War and the atom bomb. But they're just letting the
1: R&B jukebox go wild with this licentiousness. They're just colored people. They're no threat to anybody. Yeah, that was, you know, that was the thinking, you know, and and it was, I don't know. It it wasn't important enough. Black people or hillbillies, for that matter, who weren't doing this because of religious reasons, um, they didn't have any power. You know, so let them go wild. Let them record dirty records. Who gets hurt?
0: They hurt themselves. And unbeknownst to them, these clear channel stations like WLAC are carrying these signals, not just to Memphis, where young Elvis Presley's
1: hearing it, but all the way to Minnesota, where young Robert Zimmerman is. Right. And, and you know, I mean, well, maybe not around New York, where I, I grew up, but any anywhere you were... A certain number of miles from a, a major metropolitan area, because there weren't that many clear channel stations. There was you know, XCRB down in Mexico. They they were not constrained by the FCC to how many watts they could they could use. And you were hearing them in Los Angeles, which certainly had a lot of powerful stations. They just uh, they just the X stations carved out a piece of the, of the frequency spectrum that they could just horn in on a lot of places and so you heard a lot of odd stuff there
0: yeah and and to me that's something that's really lost in this era is the fun of turning the am dial and depending on
1: weather conditions and time of day you never know what you might hear right I had that experience uh, in Jamaica a friend of mine told me to bring an am radio with me he had a, a friend down there he wanted me to give it to but before I got to where I could do that, I wound up um, in Negril at the end of the island, and I just figured, well, let's see how this works. And I walked out of my hotel room onto the beach, and and just sort of dialed through, and I wound up getting harp music from Mexico, <laughs> as well as as Cuban stations. I mean, it was it was a, there was a whole world out there. that was coming through this little box, and I re. I just remembered, you know, from when I was a kid and doing the same thing in bed at night, you know, as, as I was. But I but in New York, there wasn't all that much you could get. And, and you had to, well, maybe you could get a, a station from northern New Jersey, from Newark, that was playing black music that was different from WLIB in Harlem, which was no problem to get. Yeah. And, and
0: today there's, I was about to say there's almost no analog, but I found a site recently that'll let you, surf over a map and it'll have dots where the radio stations are. And you can go to the Congo and just see it's basically picking up every radio wow. station on earth. It's really cool. But uh, we'll talk about that more later. One thing we didn't talk about when you talked about vocal groups was these gospel groups that are going on. And we've talked about that before in Art Group and Specialty Records. But again, you have the thing with acapella groups, although they like to have a guitar mixed in there. But this is something that's going to be continually, it's like a depth charge, like we talked about before with young Sam Cooke with the Soul Stars, J.W. Alexander with the Pil- Pilgrim Travelers. These guys are going to have a big impact
1: right. down the road. Yes, and, and in order to keep it, in order to attract young people um, to the church, they, they were not to the church, to the programs. They didn't care if they went to church or not, as long as they paid their admission at the door and maybe bought some records at the merchandise table. In order to do that, they they started, you know, amping up. Um, the guitars played louder. There, there would be uh, a Hammond or Lowry organ uh, out there. There would be a piano. There would be drums. Uh, there might even be an electric bass. Um, sometimes this combo would back everybody. Sometimes they were specific to the group. If the group was a real headliner on the programs, they carried their own band because th- those guys knew... How to ride the nuances of the performance so that they're supporting because everything in a gospel performance is based on working up to a climax, and and you know so that the audience has church and goes crazy. I've seen this many, many, many times.
0: Yeah, and the gospel performers, just the chord structures they're using and the emotional power of their music, they were looking to have these in, immense cathartic emotional releases. Right and that required a little bit more subtlety and it's not something you could really cram into a 3 minute record and get the same effect right and and so gospel to me is like one of the first subgenres we see not maybe one of the first but an important sort of subgenre for a minority audience a minority of a minority i mean it's a, it's, a, it's not the popular african american music it's right. a subset of that but they're exploring these really rich musical ideas they're going to come back again and again in pop music and right
1: as as people defect from gospel because it was not artistic endeavor aside it was still not a way to make money you know it's like if you're if you're getting this many people off why aren't you rich and the reason was the nature of the uh, of the subject matter and it was the um, the fact that it didn't cost much to get into a program, and there were no record sales. And, you know, here you see these people like the Pilgrim Travelers. They could very well be going after the program to stay at a house belonging to somebody in one of the large churches there, you know, sleeping in their basement. Yeah, and a
0: lot of that was because of segregation. There was no... Black no,
1: it wasn't. The... It was because they, even if they could afford a, a, the hotel, I mean, you know, they... they even if there were a hotel they could stay in, and of course, in a lot of uh, cities there was there were big black hotels, um, but um, even like so, that they, they weren't making enough money. Yeah, yeah it is it like punk, punk rock. you know, the equi- equivalent to staying on a couch. Right. Yeah, couch surfing, and that sort of had the effect
0: of building these scenes because frequently it's it's always music lovers that host these musicians. Right. And frequently it's musicians and cross pollination. Well, yeah, I
1: mean, one, one of the great examples is uh, Reverend C.L. Franklin in Detroit.
0: He, Aretha's father.
1: Yeah, he, he, he had his own church. He, he was really into the gospel music scene. Um, and he, all of the musicians who came through Detroit, they either stopped there for dinner or, or they, they stayed in the house. And, you know, Aretha grew up with this as, as a fact of life. And what a musical education. Yeah, well, you know, and her daddy was not was no slouch in that department. He had, at one point, the largest-selling gospel record ever, The Eagle Stirreth Her Nest, which was not even a song. It was a sermon. But there was music behind it. it yeah. came out on chess. Huh, cool stuff. And this is around the time when
0: a young Jerry Wexler at Billboard changes the name, or he's been credited with changing the name of African-American pop music from Race Records to Rhythm and Blues.
1: Because that was what it was called. That was what the people who made it called it. And and archaic descriptors like Harlem Hit Parade, Sepia, what was it, something, Sepia Sounds, things like that that were a code way to say music for black people. You know, just call it Rhythm and Blues. That wasn't so hard. But you know, the record industry is so conservative, they resist this stuff, but it was in Billboard. Jerry was working for Billboard because he wanted to be a writer. He, as he would tell you to the day he died, had a story in 1937 or so uh, best college writing. Anthology. I even saw it, because he had bragged about it so much, I, I knew my college library had it, and I went in there. I didn't read it, but, well, geez, he's telling the truth.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and he, of course, famously went on to be one of the big powers of Atlantic Records. Right. Well,
1: he he was he was a fan, and he, he through being in the record business, and as a lowly guy at Billboard being assigned, you know, the colored beat, he... He suddenly discovered a lot of energy there and he discovered a personal preference. He had been a jazz fan, but this stuff really excited him because it was it was very popular and, and it was very new and it was very young. A lot of the people were, you know, young people making this music. And that was, he realized that the dynamism, it, just as Alan Freed did, he realized how much this was driving youth culture to the extent that there was youth culture in those days. Yeah, the, what Elvis would call the hip cats. Yeah, up well, the cat phenomenon in Memphis was, was a whole other thing. Um, that had been going on for a long time. I, I'm reading uh, Jim Dickinson's memoir at the moment, and he's he's talking about, you know, the 50s in Memphis. There were always people like that, but it grew and it grew, and, and there, there were conventions of dress, um, that went with it, and conventions of, of hair grooming that that made you a member of the tribe. You people would take one look at you, and they'd know that you shopped at Lansky's and, and that you you know used this particular hair stuff, and you were listening to Dewey Phillips on the radio. Um, this sort of not quite bohemian behavior. Was, was present in, in the mid-'50s in, in, in Memphis, and presumably before that. I'm just going on what Jim wrote.
0: What Jim Dickinson's talking about. And, and uh, shift gears a tiny bit, the Erdogan brothers are another group of people that had a similar transmogrification to Wexler. They were jazz fans and s- stumbled into this uh, R&B business with Stick McGee and drinking Wine Spoddy Right,
1: yeah. They. they well, they... they um, they decided to start a record label, and they were rich kids, you know. Their dad was the Turkish ambassador to the United States. They grew up in Washington, D.C., which had a really fertile jazz scene. They collected records. Um, they had one of the best record jazz records collections in, in America. And um, they decided that they wanted to record jazz, and and so they they moved to uh, New York because that would be a better place. You know, you had access to 48th Street and everything. And um, they um, failed spectacularly. Um, Blue Note uh, and Savoy and labels like that, they had the jazz market locked up, and it wasn't easy to get anybody. And here they were trying anything to, you know, stay afloat, and um, one day that one of the distributors called them and, and said, I got this record called Wine Spodiote um, and um, the record label's not sending me any. Uh, we've got backed up orders here. Um, can you find this guy, Sticks McGee, who recorded it a- and make a record on him? Because of course nobody had contracts in those days. He, he'd probably been paid 50 bucks for the session, if that. And um, here he had a potential bestseller, and the record label was asleep. So, uh, Ahmed Errigan, he uh, he knew Brownie McGee, uh, probably because Brownie was one of the most visible um, blues performers in New York, uh, because he was working Broadway. He, he um, what is it, uh, Finnegan's Rainbow? One of the shows, he, he he was in it as as a harmonica player. And, and so um, Amit knew about him, and, and he went up to uh, to visit him. He says, you know, this guy Sticks McGee. He says, oh, that's my brother. He's he's actually staying with me here. He's up from, I don't know, North Carolina or wherever. And uh, Amit said, so can we get him in the studio and, and record this? Sure. So the next day, here's Sticks, and I guess Brownie, and... and yeah, a couple of musicians in, in the studio, and uh, Ahmet takes the chance that only somebody with money can do and presses up a bunch of them and calls the distributors. I got your records, and the thing took off, and it made them a whole bunch. Everybody made money off of that, except maybe Sticks McGee. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a recurring thing, but you know, it illustrates it's better to be lucky than good, but they were good. And they figured out what they were doing pretty quick, and, and signed up Ruth Brown from Detroit, right? A really gifted young singer,
1: right? She was she was the star of the um, the Flame Bar, which was uh, the big uh, black nightclub in in Detroit. And um, I, I don't know how they how they got a hold of her. Actually, I do know, but I can't remember. Um, but uh, They decided that she needed to uh, record for them. And um, she was uh, managed by Lionel Hampton's sister. And they were driving to New York to record and uh, had a terrible car accident. And uh, she uh, was sidelined for a year in the hospital. And she finally limped into the uh, Atlantic offices and said, I understand you want to record me. And uh, they they were... uh, in the process of a recording session uh, with um, Eddie Condon. And it was like a Dixieland session. But Condon had this way, he had a really uh, successful nightclub in the theater district in, in New York where they played Dixieland. But the musicians who worked for him were you know, beboppers and anything else. They were real competent jazz musicians but it was a good money gig working for Eddie Condon. So here they all were and Ahmet says, yeah, well, let's throw together an arrangement. And they did and they recorded her. And that was so long. So long, yeah. That was her first hit, one of many. Um, she was really, you know, a very omni-competent artist. She could record low-down, dirty blues. She could record rhythm and blues. She could record you know, jazz-tinged pop. Um, she even recorded what I consider a rockabilly song, uh, Wild Wild Young Men, which is... Insane. Yeah, it's a really and yeah, record. It's it's right up there with the best of them, although very little known. I don't think it was a big hit.
0: Now, I, I only came across it last year or two when I was diving into her discography, and I can't recommend her discography enough, especially, you know, the prime stuff on Atlantic, Ruth Brown is an incredibly important artist. Somebody that growing up I'd read about, you'd always see her, you know, it'd be like Ruth Brown, T-Bone Walker, Roots of Rock and Roll, and right. kind of skip through those pages to get to Elvis, but it is worth going
1: back and listening to that
0: oh, stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah.
1: There's a lot of stuff that, that back then that, that's worth diving into in, in some detail.
0: Yeah, and her one thing that struck me about her vocal style is, you know, jazz singers a little earlier than her Seem to model their voices on trumpets. This goes all the way up to Chet Baker later on. But people like Frank Sinatra sing, emulate the tones of a trumpet. Ruth Brown can emulate the squeaking of a saxophone. Right. And what she does on Mommy, He Treats Your Daughter Mean is just amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. She, she and that sold just insane quantities of records and, and got answer records um, from people, you know, like Lowell Folsom and, and uh, deep blues people it really it was i don't know it's like one of those records that comes at a time when it's needed (laughs) yeah
0: i think that there was a lot going on you know women had gone into the workforce during the war and they were kind of forced back out of the workforce and there's a lot of tension there it was a a, similar to african-american men who served in the army and didn't want to deal with segregation and bullshit like that when they came home and women who'd been out in the world supporting themselves weren't too amused to be finding themselves at the mercy financially of men who tend to be abusive sometimes.
1: Yeah, well and and there was the thought emerging that you don't do that. You know, these women had pride. You don't hit me. You just don't. Yeah. It's, and it. if you do, I will walk out. And this is, believe it or not, a really revolutionary change in women's consciousness. And and because they were minorities and because nobody was paying attention, the black artists were among the first to deal with that sense of empowerment.
0: Intersectionality, baby. Yeah. That's what they call it today. And, and speaking of intersectionality, the Detroit music scene, which Ruth Brown popped out of, was really cooking right now. And John Lee Hooker had found his way up there and, and cuts boogie chilling.
1: Well, John Lee Hooker was, you know, he, he was an unreconstructed Delta bluesman. Uh, uh, unlike uh, Muddy Waters, he wasn't a band guy. Because he couldn't keep time. Yeah, I mean, you, nobody, nobody could ever really play with him. I mean, people certainly tried and did, but uh, he, he was a mess to keep up with. Um, and he was also smart enough to know that as much as the Chicagoans liked deep Delta blues, there were too many deep Delta blues men there And he wanted to be a star, so he went to Detroit. And um, he, what was the name of that club that he, uh, Tim Lewis's place, or something like that. Now look at me. Yeah, it was one one of his hits, where he celebrated, it was like a commercial for the bar where he worked. (laughs) Oh, the best music in town, yeah. And and, you know, it was, he was capable of coming up with so-called songs You know, every $50 bill you put down there, he'd come up with another one, you know, it's just, and once again, I don't think it was 50, it was probably more like 15. But here he was, he was a star in the town where he was living, and he also um, worked the auto factories, yeah. Because that was another thing that black guys could do in Detroit,
0: and he's a classic example of somebody that sheet music cannot do justice to. This music, I mean, it's frequently one chord yeah.
1: songs, uh, driven by by the the rhythm he's playing. You know, much like Bo Diddley. Yeah, um,
0: but it's not the Bo Diddley beat. I oh mean, no, it a it, four it's, to the it's floor this boom, boogie,
1: boom, boom yeah,
0: thing, and and. But, you know, and there's all kinds of ferment going on in Detroit at the time. Singers that we're going to see later, like Little Willie John and Levi Stubbs of the Four Tops are, are, are gigging at these clubs and, and Barry Gordy's out there, Jackie Wilson. Uh, so much talent in Detroit at the time. And 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 the Erdogans are the first ones to tap it with Ruth Brown and then, uh, but John Lee Hooker, like Muddy Waters, represents this sort of, I mean, the, the emergence of electric blues is this weird sort of throwback phenomenon. A, a lot of it's Appealing to African American immigrants from the South who've come up, what you, right, can, you know what the bougie folks would call Bamas,
1: right, exactly, and, and yet, well, and then you, you mentioned like the Four Tops and, and uh, groups like that, um, they they were big at the Flame Bar, but they had to go to um, Chicago to record because there were no real record companies in Detroit. There, I think there was, I think maybe Fortune Records. Was operating then. I, I know nothing about Fortune Records because the people who own it still think they're sitting on a gold mine and won't let anybody touch it. So hmm. that history is is going to disappear when the, the current proprietors disappear.
0: That is deeply unfortunate.
1: Yeah, but I mean there were a lot of a lot of people. I mean John Lee Hooker recorded for Fortune, um, but so did a lot of other people who. Um, are not as well known, Nolan Strong and the Diablos, not not at all known to uh, to people today.
0: Hmm. Well, hopefully that gets unearthed, but you also had people like, we've talked about the Bihari Brothers and their various ventures, they see what's going on with John Lee Hooker and Muddy Waters, they find Lightning Hopkins.
1: Right. Lightning Hopkins had been recording uh, in, um, in Houston for four-star records, which was... Um, some guy who who fancied himself a mogul of entertainment had this label. He also recorded early George Jones uh, tracks um, on a different label. But but um, they heard they heard Four Stars recordings and they thought, okay, primitive blues man, let's go get him. You know, Sid Nathan had one too, Smokey Hogg. The only reason he's not so well known is. Unlike John Lee Hooker and Lightning Hopkins, he was terrible. He really was. I can't, he had one record called Angels in Harlem, um, which is pretty bad, but it was a hit. Yeah. Uh, and then Smokey Hogg, you know, there must be 30, 40 records on him coming out of King. Ooh, they're terrible.
0: Yeah, once a recorder, uh, an artist has a hit, they would go back to the well. You see this over
1: and over well, again. Well, yeah, they'd, they'd try to clone it on the next one but just a little bit different. So you wouldn't know you were, you wouldn't think you were listening to the same record. But uh, Lightnin' Hopkins, he, he was a man who lived in the moment, which, which you can see, um, if you ever see uh, Les Blank's amazing movie, The Blues According to Lightnin' Hopkins, um, where he basically spends all of his time in the ramshackle neighborhood in Houston where Lightnin' lived, he would... He'd go in a club and and he'd see how the audience was interacting with each other and make up a song about it on the spot, and and he was also a pretty good guitar player, uh, but like uh, John Lee Hooker, he was not a guy to have a band. He was, uh, I remember um, one of the guys used to back up Johnny Winter uh, tried to do a band, an electric band, psychedelic band with with. Uh, Lightning in front, um, which was fine with Lightning. He was getting paid. And and they were rehearsing, and, and he said, well, where do you want me to change the chord? And Lightning says, listen to me. Lightning Change when Lightning wants to change.
0: Yeah, and somebody like Otis Spann and, and Little Walker, they would hone in on Muddy Waters and play with him all the time, and they knew when he was going to jump.
1: Well, he, he didn't do that much rhythmic... Variation. He was. He was pretty. He was because, to
0: keep up with in the first because, place. Because
1: well, because he had a band, and, yeah. and he had to, he had to keep them with him, just like he had to, you know, be in front. He had to lead the thing, but he had to have a sense of direction. So that's why most of Muddy Water stuff is is pretty standard blues. What's not standard is the virtuoso playing, and he knew that people were coming to hear him for that. Yeah, and his band was called the Headhunters because they went around cutting heads. They, they would find some guy who was doing pretty good and they, they would challenge him. And if Muddy's guy lost, the other thing he lost was his job. But <laughs> that was why, you know, when, when uh, Little Walter got a big hit with Juke, which was just something he used to warm up the show with, um, he got a big head while he was on tour, and and, um, he quit the band. Muddy didn't fire him, he quit. And Muddy knew exactly what to do. He walked down the street to another club and picked up James Cotton, and he had a harp player for that night's gig. There was no question about it. He knew that Cotton was the second best guy in town, so he got him.
0: And, And Waters is very much like James Brown in that he was able to keep the chassis moving down the road even when the wheels were rolling off. Right underneath them, he could find a new tire. You know, harmonica player, no problem. My buddy Waters, I'll book that. Um, but there's a new form of blues brewing up in Memphis. With BB King's the first one to hit with three o'clock blues, but he's got younger friends Johnny Ace and Bobby Blue Bland who develop a really different style.
1: Yeah, that that's I mean BB King was sort of the outlier in the Memphis scene because. He was a standard guitar player, you know, like Muddy Waters, but completely unlike in terms of his uh, his playing. He he, um, he learned a lot of guitar from his cousin Booker White, um, who recorded some in the thirties. But uh, um, but BB was an older style, and and this, as you say, this this new style was based on a horn uh, section and not so much. There would be one guitar player, but um, he was—he would lay back with everybody else, and the um, the emphasis was on the vocal, and that was very much to keep the focus off of the band so you didn't have things like Little Walter taking a walk. Um, people, except for specialists, people don't know the names of those people in the band. There, there was... I don't know whether this this group actually existed or not, but everybody talks about the Beale Streeters, which was Johnny Ace and uh, Roscoe Gordon and uh, Bobby Bland and a couple of other guys. Whether you could actually go into a club and see the Beale Streeters, I don't know, but they all hung out together and they all shared a common vision. And yeah, Johnny Ace, he was the first one to get picked up um, Don Roby in Houston had a um, a real connection with Memphis because he he knew that if he was going to be a national power in the R excuse me in the R and B business he was going to have to modernize his sound because the northern states would want to buy his stuff he he didn't really succeed in that um, because most of the people who grew up in the north never got to hear Bobby Bland on the radio.
2: Hmm.
1: But, um, yeah, he, uh, he was, had this thing going with, um, Memphis to, to, the point where he, um, bought a label so that he could get Johnny Ace. He bought Duke records, which was, um, what Johnny Ace recorded for. And all, also had the connection with the Beale Streeters. So he was putting out, I think Roscoe Gordon wound up on chess. Um, but, uh, Certainly, Junior Parker and Bobby Bland were on Duke, and it all came through. Um, it was recorded in Memphis, but it, it all came from Houston. Houston. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and Johnny Ace is also one of the first people, at least to my knowledge, that you hear using what's later the blue the do progression.
1: Yeah, like, and it's a big change from the blues progression. Right, one four six five something like that.
0: Yeah, there's a minor in there, and yeah. and, and it's going to have a huge impact. And and Johnny Ace carves out this doomed haunted persona of course you know put a ma- gun in your mouth on was it christmas eve or new, new year's, year's eve? eve yeah yeah and, and pull the trigger that'll do that and then don ruby was happy to capitalize on that with the yeah, johnny ace well memorial the first
1: 10 album. inch albums to come out ever johnny ace memorial album and the other thing was that um it wasn't just his doomed thing it was his like i'm hopelessly in love thing you know pledging my love um that really got black teenage girls who were an underserved market that, but they really loved him. And, and they, after he died, there was this whole death cult around him that was similar to the one that happened with James Dean later on where teenage girls had these shrines with pictures cut out of, you know, fan magazines of of Johnny Ace
0: yeah, and he's never going to let you down.
1: I mean, right, <laughs> not
0: anymore. Yeah, and the weird thing to me about Johnny Ace being one of the first successful album artists is his stuff is pretty samey. I mean, it, it has a lot of impact on the compilation with other stuff, but an album of Johnny Ace can get, you know, unless you're in the vibe to really get down and sad about the great late, great Johnny Ace, it gets a little stale.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, the other guy who I, I noted on that... Um, in trying to listen to his early stuff, was Chuck Willis. The King uh, of the Straw. Yeah, but until he hooked on to that, which was, I guess, about 1956 or something, he he put out just dreary blues stuff for okay records. Uh, I, I, I finally got a uh, two-CD compilation. I don't think I've ever played the second CD. It, it is really, really samey. And that's, of course, down to the uh, the record business wanting... To not be too radical in in making the next record sound too much unlike,
0: yeah, I mean it was hard to do promo, hard to build an artist's name, and if you're selling a Johnny Ace or a Chuck Willis record, people are expecting a certain kind of record. The record company wants to deliver it.
1: Well, and also they they don't with Chuck Willis he he wasn't really having hits with this stuff. It it took his move to uh, Atlantic for him to start having hits, and. Um, it was just, there was this kind of blues. Uh, another CD compilation I have is the Mercury R&B collection, which is like five, six discs of really dreary rhythm and blues stuff. That's so there's nothing distinguished about it. Nothing at all distinguished about what you're listening to.
0: And that's one of the pitfalls of our current era of the Celestial Jukebox is it takes a certain amount of curation to pick out the really good stuff. Right. And so you know somebody like Bear Family that does a great compilation like *Blowing the Fuse*, that's pretty priceless because it's a, a big, broad survey of stuff sequenced in a way to make it really fun to listen to.
1: But they also put out these boxes with every take. Yes. You know, so you're, you're sitting and listening to seven takes of the same song from Arthur Crudup, who's just not that interesting when he finally gets it.
0: Yeah, frequently with the Big Bear family comp of, of a single artist, you need to curate it or get somebody to curate it yourself right.
1: and boil it down
0: to sort of a greatest hits
1: version. I, I tried listening to the Every Scrap of Tape that he he recorded box of, of uh, Carl Perkins, and no.
0: Yeah, there's just some artists that don't. I mean, not that Carl Perkins isn't great, and you can obsess right, on Carl he, Perkins he all day. But he was drunk
1: most of yeah. the time, and you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oops, I missed that. Can I do that again? <laughs>
0: It's, things get painful, even the the greats have feet of clay. So we talked about Alan Freed, um, but this guy is going to have an enormous impact, bigger than any of the other DJs, uh, until Dick Clark comes along. And
1: Well, Freed was a real egotist, and he was, with the vote of confidence that Cleveland gave him, and his sort of unique, he thought he was unique, um... I'm a white guy with black music um, thing going for him. He wasn't unique. There, there was also Hunter Hancock in, in, uh, in Los Angeles. Johnny Otis told me a wonderful story about him uh, in, in that he was, um, uh, Hancock was emceeing some sort of program at the Barrelhouse Club, and a black kid walked up to Johnny Otis, who he didn't even know that Johnny Otis was also white, and, and he said, Man, the white people take everything from us. You know, they, they take our music. you know. They take our clothes. They take everything from us. And now this white guy on stage, he's trying to make me believe he's Hunter Hancock. <laughs> that is classic cultural appropriation still. Right. Uh, 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 so anyway, yeah, but Freed, you know, he, he knew after... Not very much time. He knew he was bigger than Cleveland. He needed to bust out. And sure enough, there were uh, radio stations in New York. He, he he's put his review on the road from Cleveland a couple of times, and he got real big audiences on the East Coast. Uh, integrated audiences. Integrate, well, he insisted that the shows be integrated, uh, probably because he knew he would always get that picture in the paper of lots of kids who couldn't get into the show outside the theater. And, and, you know, he knew that was golden. And so WINS, which I don't know what they were before Freed, because I never listened to them before Freed, they hired him on immediately. And um, he became the biggest disc jockey on the East Coast, without a question. Yeah, and changed American culture. Yeah, yeah. Because he knew how to ingratiate himself with the record companies. And he also knew some business tricks. I mean, Maybelline has, on some of its early pressings, he's listed as one of the songwriters. Give me some of the publishing and, you know, I'll see that it becomes a hit. I'll play it on my radio show. This whole conflict of interest thing, who cared? It was popular music. It was disposable stuff for kids, you know? And so... He did that. He, he discovered the Moonglows in Cleveland and got them a, a deal with chess and, you know, took sincerely to the top of the charts. And then I guess the Andrews sisters or somebody like that also recorded it and that was fine with him. He didn't care about the Moonglows so much as he cared about the publishing, which was in his name. Yeah, and that is big money. Of course it's going to come back to Biden when people do start caring. Yeah, well the problem is that he got caught in the payola hearings and he was just amazed at being singled out because he was far from the only person who was, I mean, everybody knew it was happening, but it was just this stupidity on the part of the congressman that, that singled him out. And he was not prepared to deal with it. Dick Clark was prepared to deal with it. He was heard to say on the steps of the federal courthouse after one of his interrogations. He said, man, I stayed up all last night dissolving companies and folding them into other companies. I am just exhausted.
0: <laughs> and Dick Clark did cover his tracks.
1: And he And survived the whole pale of crisis. And went on. became a, a, a entertainment magnate. I mean, he owned... Um, New Year's Eve in Times Square until the day he died.
0: Yeah, for decade after decade. And um, I think we've covered the ground we wanted to cover, but we've got a little extra time, so I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about New Orleans a little bit more. We've talked about Fats Domino and Lou Chud, and Dave Bartholomew putting that together for his first hit. But then they get Lloyd Price and basically cut a, a the same band as Fats Domino. Fats Domino's playing piano. Yeah. Lottie Miss Claudie, different singer, but Lottie Miss Claudie, and Lottie Miss Claudie is another one that's frequently, you know, bandied about as the first rock and roll record. Nah, nah. Tell tell us why it's not.
1: Well, to begin with, it doesn't have the rock and roll beat. It doesn't have that metronomic quality. And for another thing, it was just a rhythm and blues song. But coming from New Orleans, it had a lot more pep to it, which is what sold Fats Domino. A- and there were lots and lots of of people waiting b- beneath Lloyd Price to, uh, for their chance. I mean, he did Lottie Miss Claudia, and then I think he got drafted. So he was out of the scene for a while, and there were other people ready to step up. Um, there was the one recording studio in town, Cosmo Matasis, and so, you know, there was a house band, or there, there were people who could be a combo Earl Palmer, the drummer. Right, Earl Palmer, um, Red Tyler, uh, all, all these people who, um, a lot of them played in, in uh, Dave Bartholomew's band, but he wasn't gigging all the time. And also, it was a big band, so it was expensive to hire him. So these little, you know, four- and five-piece combos could come in there and provide that kind of sound that, um, that people really wanted. I mean... New Orleans is just so rich with stuff, one-off things. Mardi Gras Mambo, um, which was the Neville brothers in a very, very early uh, incarnation. Uh, Vocal groups like the Shawis and the uh, Spiders, um, who were not particularly famous. But uh, if you can find a a compilation of of, uh, early stuff on on Imperial from New Orleans... uh, it's just astonishing uh, how good some of these records you never heard of actually are.
0: Yeah, New Orleans is immensely rich. And one other record that people throw out as the first rock and roll record is Jackie Brenson's and Ike Turner's Rocket 88.
1: Right. This was, this was one of the big, <laughs> I don't know what, confluences of mistakes um, in rock and roll history. Because Ike Turner was this teenage kid who'd grown up in, in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi. And uh, his mother ran a boarding house, which, is, again, was one of these safe spots, uh, probably listed in the Green Book. Some There's been some interest recently in the Green Book, which was an annual guide published by some guy uh, on being black on the road, uh, both for families, salesmen, and musicians, where you could eat where you could stay, where you wouldn't get any problem. And uh, so anyway, she, she put up musicians who were coming through town, and Ike, you know, was he was a real virtuoso piano player and guitar player, and he formed a band of his teenage friends, the Kings of Rhythm. And when he heard that there was recording going on up the road in Memphis, he came by Sam Phillips, you know, this Sun Studios, <clears throat> and said, I know all kinds of music- musicians I can bring in here to record, and then you can sell the masters. So that's that's what he uh, they did. Um, he he discovered, or he didn't discover, but he brought in B.B. King to start with, and bam, the uh, Bihari brothers out in Los Angeles signed him to Modern. And uh, so one day he didn't have anybody... Particular to bring in, so how about recording the Kings of Rhythm? And it just happened that the Chess Brothers had smelled something going on in Memphis and they cut Rocket 88 um, in the Sun Studios. And they came, uh, the, the Chess Brothers came by and asked Sam Phillips what he had. He said, Oh, I just recorded this. And they, whoa! And they bought it up. And um, Sam goes through... Ike, and he says, hey, I sold your record to the Chess Brothers. He goes, wow, that's great. And then they go back to Chicago and press it up, and they put it down as Jackie Brinston and his Delta Cats, which really disappointed Ike Turner. <laughs> Ike <laughs> Turner, when disappointed, tended to get vindictive. And so he cut off all... We cut off Jackie Brinston for one thing, and then he, he, he cut off... Um, Sam Phillips, and he cut off the Chess Brothers. Would not help them at all. And he partners back up with the Biharis, who are also pissed off that they. Well, yeah, and that it. something they they were there in town also, and something was sold out from under them, which became well, I was a top hit, um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, when the next BB King recording session was in the quote unquote colored YMCA. Uh, up until the custodian threw them out, they were just cutting hit after hit after hit in a, in a gym with a bunch of blankets hung around the place. Yeah, it's
0: very interesting to me to think about the alternative history of Ike Turner had had his name on that record. Right. And they had kept that combo going as a going concern. It could have been a very different... Well, he did keep
1: it going. Well, not not, in that shape. But he also realized that Memphis was a mighty crowded place and he was a mighty young kid and he really didn't have that name recognition. So he moved up the river to St. Louis. Where he and Chuck Berry then become the kings of the clubs. Right, exactly. And that turned out to be a great idea because, I mean, there were three great black musicians in St. Louis. Ike Turner, Chuck Berry... At Oliver Sane, who is almost unknown, but who is still alive up there, I believe. I'm not sure. Um, and anyway, he's later. But Sane was responsible for discovering uh, Annie May Book, who became uh, Turner's Turner. second wife, and under the name Tina Turner. But um, the you know, Sane also discovered um, much later. Uh, Fontella Bass. And and many people
0: think it's Aretha Franklin when that big hit comes under.
1: Oh yeah, but Fontella Bass comes out of a completely different gospel group yeah. which her mother had. But before
0: you duck the question completely, why is Rockin' 88 not the first rock and roll record?
1: Once again, it's a swing record. It's just, up-tempo blues is not rock and roll. It's not. Rock and roll is a new thing. When it appears, it is unlike anything else and it establishes its conventions real early on, and after after it exists, you can tell what is and what isn't. So, is
0: Maybelline Rock and Roll?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: Is Elvis's version of "That's
1: All Right, Mama" Rock and Roll? Not really. Once again, they're they're working off of a swing tradition, but it's Western swing, so the rhythm is different, but. Once again, they they were not... um, When is Elvis doing rock and roll?
0: At what point?
1: I think by the time he's on RCA, a lot of the stuff he's recording... Heartbreak Hotel. Well, Heartbreak Hotel, yeah, that's a ballad. But I was thinking more of Jailhouse Rock and um, uh, even Hound Dog, which when you hear the original of Hound Dog, it's nothing like.
0: Yeah, Big Mama Thornton's version, uh, Lieber and Stoller wrote. And did they produce it as well?
1: And, yeah, you know, I just, believe I believe they did. That um, is an incredible record, and yeah. you'll
0: frequently find it like re recorded from the '60s, floating around as as Big Mom with Thornton's "Hound Dog." It finds its way into compilations. Everything find that early '50s version because it right. is
1: so killer. The, the Duke version, uh, and it's also Elvis didn't get that song from her. He got it. He he got it in Vegas. Too. Yeah, he he had a really unsuccessful early. Booking in Las Vegas, and he um, he enjoyed himself. He he got to see uh, Billy Ward and the Dominoes, and he got to hear um, uh, Clyde McFadder oh, Jackie Wilson. Sorry, yeah, you hear Jackie, Jackie Wilson, yeah. and, and you can hear this on the Million Dollar Quartet, where where they're talking about him being in um, in Las Vegas. Oh man, there was this guy up there, this little tiny colored guy, and he could sing me better than I can. And he also heard a real hack group called, um, what was it, Tommy Bell and the Bellboys? I think so. I think that's yeah. right. it's definitely and the Bellboys. Somebody Bell and the Bellboys who appear in one of the early rock and roll movies, and and they were just incompetent. So that when they were trying to do Hound Dog, they they the ar- it. I mean, what they, they it. They didn't boulderize it so that. much as as they they just they got the rhythm wrong but Elvis and heard the verse it. is wrong
0: and I mean it sounds like somebody who's heard the song once vaguely isn't that sharp a musician I've never heard music.
1: their their version
0: uh, the, well I mean El- Elvis's version is such a dramatic rewrite you can you can piece together what they were doing
1: yeah exactly he he knew that his band, could do better than them because oh, yeah. he, he knew they were terrible. <laughs> yeah, and, and Scotty and, Moore and the gang were not. Yeah, exactly. You know, hey, boys, here's a thing I picked up in Vegas. Well, they, actually, they were probably along with him. Yeah, um, they were uh, playing the gig. Yeah, and and they 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 heard this, and he I can do that better. And yeah. he could, and yeah.
0: he did. Yes, indeed. Yes, he did. Well, that's been fun, so we'll, we'll get back to the question of the first rock and roll record later. That was our second episode of Let It Roll, which covered the start of the 1950s. While many consider this to be the period that marked the birth of rock and roll, Ed argued strongly it wasn't. I have to respectfully disagree, especially about Good Rockin' Tonight and Rocket 88, but now that you've heard from Ed, you can decide for yourself. Be sure and check out our website, LetItRollPodcast.com, where you can access the Spotify and YouTube playlists we've curated so you can listen to the music we've been discussing. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, to 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine
2: books are sold. It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.